Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. All right, everyone, this is the Need to Know podcast. And in keeping with the point of the Need to Know podcast in helping policymakers, congressional staffers, college students who are studying foreign affairs, we wanted to do a special series where we are going to dive into the bilateral relationships that other countries have around the world. We know a lot about the bilateral relationships that the United States has, but Oftentimes, we're caught off guard or on the back foot when it comes to relationships that other countries have with each other. So joining me today, I've got my friend and colleague, Andrew Rudman, who is the director of the Mexico Institute, and we're going to talk about some of Mexico's relationships. So Andrew, welcome back to the Need to Know podcast. Thanks, Aaron. Happy to be here. So I wanted to bring you on to talk about Mexico's relationships that it has, I think so many times from the U.S. policymaking perspective, we sort of think of Mexico as in, in a sort of monolithic way or a myopic way where we're only thinking about the southern border situation because there's so much that goes on with the domestic politics of it all. But we often forget that Mexico has its own domestic politics, uh, certainly interesting over the last few years with the uh, with the AMLO administration and then stemming out from that, the relationships that Mexico has with some pretty leftist regimes elsewhere in Latin America. So I wanted to talk to you about that. So uh, just sort of broadly speaking, let's talk about the relationships that Mexico has with leftist-leaning governments in Latin America. Aaron, maybe we'll take one, one step back and just point out that in terms of relationship, Mexico has um, more free trade agreements than, than I think any country in the world covering somewhere in the upwards of 45 or 50 countries and, and geographies. So Mexico, as, as you said, has lots of uh, lots of relationships. It, it, it has an active foreign policy or, or trade policy that goes way beyond North America, even though North America is, is obviously incredibly important. And Mexico has always had um, sort of a, a tricky, it, it, it's tricky to manage Mexican foreign policy in that, you know, it, it is so close and so tied into the U.S. and, and you know, physically connected. So that has sometimes limited Mexico's ability to maneuver in some ways, in other ways, it gives it a lot of latitude because, um, you know, on the one hand, Mexico can't go anywhere, but on the other hand, it's not going anywhere. So there's sort of a, a, a bilateral, you know, we have to, we have to get along. Um, but Mexico has traditionally had a non-interventionist defense of sovereignty foreign policy. And that I, I think pretty clearly stems from its own existence from um, infamous Mexican-American war where 
where the U.S. took about a third of Mexico's territory. And so that, and that um, while we hardly ever talk about it in the U.S., in Mexico, that's a huge touch point. And so there's a lot of, we didn't like what happened to us, and we're not going to support it happening to anyone else. Taking a, taking a pause right there. So uh, you, you talk about this sort of simpatico that Mexico has probably with some other regimes within Latin America, who maybe take a bit more of an aggressive line on this. But it certainly creates that there is there is this dynamic in Mexican politics where that strain is going to be supported in its electoral politics. Right, right. Um, th that's exactly right. Both the point that, that other countries that are further away perhaps can have more latitude. I mean, you might see a a country in South America voting against the UN resolution, whereas Mexico might abstain to just to, you know, hey, we didn't vote against you, big brother, you know, standing right across the border, but we couldn't go along with it. Whereas when you're further away or less dependent on the US, maybe you you take a UN vote as a way to to poke your finger in in the US government's eye um, in a way that looks good domestically, but maybe doesn't have much of an impact. So I, I think you're absolutely right that. And that's kind of the point I was getting at, where sometimes being close gives you flexibility. Sometimes it, it limits flexibility. Uh, let's talk about the AMLO administration, because AMLO seems to bring this out in the Mexican populace a bit more. Right. We've talked about this on other episodes that we've done where he came into office taking a populist, maybe even leftist approach, right? It doesn't, I, I don't really know if we could really say that his administration has so much played out that way, but he certainly has reached a hand out to other regimes such as Cuba, Venezuela, and others. So let's let, help us understand AMLO's approach. So that that's right. I mean, I, I was I think, starting to say AMLO and in, I would say is more a nationalist than a, a leftist because he's certainly taken some policies, uh, particularly on the economic side, he wouldn't associate with, with sort of radical left poli economic policy. Um, but he has a base that, that does lean in that, that leftist, um, uh, leftist direction. And so supporting Cuba, supporting um, Venezuela is both consistent with Mexico's longstanding non-interventionist tradition and also plays to his base that uh, may have some anti-American elements and, you know, supporting Cuba by definition is opposing the U.S. And that's going to appeal to some people. Um, as I said, it fits that longstanding path. And, and AMLO has had a long sort of interest, let's say, in Cuba that goes way before, um, way back prior to his 2018 election of, of sort of being enamored with uh, uh, the Cuban experiment, if you will. And so he's, it is not inconsistent that he's being supportive of Cuba, but it is a change in Mexican foreign policy, certainly under the past administrations, which um, tended to be closer to the U.S. Um, as far as I know, no Mexican government has ever supported U.S.-Cuba policy, but some have been less vocal. Uh, whereas AMLO has come out, he uses the language that the Cuban regime uses in terms of calling it a blockade uh, and, and not an embargo. Um, he used that language when there were demonstrations in Cuba this summer. There were protests about the conditions and, and, and AMLO, rather than, like many countries, pointing out that 
uh, there were some serious problems that needed to be dealt with, he used the language of the of the government and ascribed the protests to the to U.S. policy that these were protests against the U.S. or as a result of the U.S. And of course, they were protests against the Cuban government for its actions. Um, he then sent three shiploads of supplies to Mexico. Um, probably the largest aid donation by Mexico in, in decades. Uh, and uh, which, you know, parenthetically, if there were truly a blockade, the donations couldn't have gotten there. Um, so it sort of pr- proves the point that, that um, I'm not endorsing U.S. Cuba policy, but AMLO has mischaracterized it in ways that, you know, are inflammatory here in the States, but yet are really positive for his domestic base that will want to hear it call it a blockade. And then turning to Venezuela, from the U.S. side, we've looked at Venezuela and the hyperinflation that's been going on in Venezuela, population that is, you know, extensively moving to other countries in South America, creating a huge crisis with Colombia at the border. So where where do they stand with uh, their relationship with with Maduro? So again, and, and this is a, a, a great example of that non-interventionist self-determination. Um, AMLO, uh, the Mexican government, ha- continues to recognize Maduro as the president, even though much of the international community recognizes Juan Guaido. Um, that's that sort of non-interventionist, we're not going to get involved. Um, AMLO invited Maduro to come to uh, Mexico's independence celebrations. Um, that was uh, precedent setting. And um, technically, in doing so, Mexico violated its own commitment under the UN Convention Against uh, Organized Transnational Crime because there are international warrants for Maduro. So um, technically or legally, uh, Mexico should have turned him over and and they did not do that. Um, And on the positive note, and and maybe that's uh, that would obviously be the logic for not turning him over, Mexico is hosting talks between the opposition and the Venezuelan government. Uh, they've held three rounds so far. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think that is more location than Mexico being actively involved. Uh, but I, I think it shows that Mexico has established itself as a country where both the opposition and the Venezuelan government feel that they can safely engage. Uh, and, and that's obviously important and, and maybe in the greater scheme of things more important than whether or not you attempted to extradite Maduro. Yeah, certainly when you're, you know, it would kind of forfeit your neutral ground if you turn in the guy, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, it would definitely be seen by the Venezuelan government as a hostile act, no doubt about it. <laughs> well, okay, so that so that makes that makes some sense. But is there? Uh, do you think there's some motivation within AMLO's coalition to support? Venezuela or to kind of take this sort of non uh, not aggressive approach beyond just the uh, sovereign the sovereignty issue is there is there some political gain that he gets out of this it may be a case Aaron where um, you know the, the people who don't like AMLO aren't gonna like him less for doing this but it probably strengthens his base you know I think you could compare it to any politician where, you know, when, when they are very polemic, as, as AMLO is, um, there, there's not a whole lot of gray. People really like him or, or people really don't. And the ones who really like him will be supportive. 
of his actions in support of Venezuela because he will describe them in ways that resonate with his supporters that this is, you know, this is the right of the Venezuelan people to determine for themselves how they should be governed and you shouldn't have the OAS, which AMLO has also criticized of late, or the United States government intervening. Well, I guess one thing to help us understand them, what is AMLO's base? Um, when I started out the, the, the conversation here, I threw out the word populist. You came back with nationalist. Um, what, what defines AMLO and, his, and, and what, what's his base? What's his base of support? So it, it is a common populism is, is, is certainly an apt word to describe it. Um, it's sort of a, a nationalist populist um, to, to coin a phrase that will um, probably amuse and, and offend some of your listeners. It's sort of, it was sort of a make Mexico great again campaign. Um, so his constituency, his constituency more than anything are those people in Mexico who feel as though they never got anything out of the old system. And what he basically ran on is the, you know, big business and the neoliberals and the system has screwed you over. It hasn't paid attention to you. Um, it hasn't given you the benefits, the riches of, of Mexico. And I'm going to change that. So that appeals to marginalized groups. It appeals to the poor. It appeals to the left. Uh, his attacks on on business and his sort of suspicion of business obviously support or uh, appeal to the left. But he also has a, a part of his base which are social conservatives, which makes for very interesting politics. Because again, you would think of a leftist, for example, as being incredibly supportive of women rights and and pro you know pro um, pro choice and and things like that. And, and AMLO has worked really hard to sort of stay out of that whole that whole area, in fact, he's attacked women's groups of being tools of, of the neoliberal, uh, you know, business community and, and things like that. He's tried to stay out of the conversations about abortion. So it, it's a, it's a unique coalition in that it's mostly left leaning, but then you have this social conservative uh, group, maybe be as, you know, sort of if evangelicals supported Bernie Sanders, maybe. It sounds strikingly familiar, except the coalition that's formed. Has AMLO changed politics? We've seen our politics change, you know, and things that people supported 10 years ago are now reason for, you know, you're, you're going against the party. Uh, so is that is that happening in, in Mexico as well? Well, he, he certainly has has a style in, in which if you're not with me, you're against me and, and, and you're the enemy. So so like in the United States, the politics has definitely gotten more combative. And I think he has certainly changed politics. I mean, the, the party that um, supports him, the majority party in Mexico, Morena, didn't even exist um, six or so years ago, um, maybe eight years ago. So, you know, he's essentially the, the Morena party is essentially a, a vehicle for him. And, and one of Morena's challenges will be to see if it can sustain itself post AMLO. AMLO says when his term is up, he's going to retire and, and go back home and, and not have a public presence. Obviously, we'll, we'll see if that happens. But um, yes, he has, without a doubt, he has changed Mexican politics. And just so that our, for our listeners who may not know, in Mexico, they serve one six-year term. So he's about half at the halfway point now, right? Yes. 
Yes, that's exactly right. And one of the things that he is attempting to do, which is, again, novel for Mexico, is hold a a referendum in March of 2022. Um, and the only thing on the ballot is, uh, I'm not sure exactly how it'll be worded, but the gist of it is, do you think the president should stay in office? Um, so almost like a self-imposed recall, uh, at, you know, similar to what happened in California, except in this case, it would be as if, as if Newsom had said, I want to have a vote on whether I should stay. Right. He's, he's basically offering a confidence vote. Yes. Yeah. It, it's a vote of confidence. And the, the interesting thing, I, I mean, I think not very many people question whether he will, uh, whether that referendum will be successful. There are questions about whether it's constitutional and how many people will vote. and Will there be enough votes to have it be valid? But I don't think anybody thinks he won't win. But the interesting longer term question is the precedent that could set for the future. And, and just as we have now questions here about um, you know, will when when one party controls the House and the Senate, will they attempt to impeach the president? You're essentially setting up a similar situation where the opposition could say, "Okay, we don't like you. We're going to vote you out after three years," and you know that that too creates creates different issues. Uh, before we wrap up, I want to give a chance to talk. Uh, let's let's turn a bit further south to Bolivia. Uh, help us understand the dynamic there, with because Bolivia has had its own troubles. Uh, Mexico has been involved here. So help us understand this this dynamic. Well, again, I think this this goes back to what we talked about initially, Aaron, about sort of the non-intervention defensive sovereignty can either be a reason to do things or a reason to not do things. In the case in uh, 2019, after the Bolivian election, when there were allegations that, that the government of Evo Morales had, had committed fraud, Morales fled Bolivia on a Mexican uh, military jet and wound up spending a year in, in pseudo-exile in Mexico and then returned to Bolivia when, when his candidate was re-elected, was elected in, uh, in 2020. Um, so that would be a case, as I said, whereas you, know, you could argue that, that offering asylum, on one hand, is a long tradition and, and other, you know, long time ago, other dictators spent time in Mexico, right? There was that back in the 70s, it was pretty common for that's how you resolve these crises. You put the dictator somewhere safe and, and they live out their time. And Mexico has been that place before. Uh, but this was a little bit different um, because Mexico hadn't been doing that. And you could argue that here was someone ostensibly um, cheating to remain in power and AMLO, in a sense, was supporting it, whereas he generally has taken the position that those sorts of, of, of actions are in, improper. So, as I said, it, it's sort of that. Just if you can use the policy to justify action or non-action. And then if you, if you compare that to Nicaragua, you can see a real shift in Mexico's policy. In June of 2018, before AMLO had been elected, Mexico led an effort in the OAS to condemn Daniela Ortega's anti-democratic activity. And in October of this year, Mexico and Argentina abstained from a, an OAS vote to condemn Ortega for, for other actions, sim similar anti-democratic action. So you can see a real clear shift. Um, and in both cases that would have been justified, you know, AMLO would justify that as without a doubt as non-intervention. Um, although the relationship with Ortega is not as tight as it was with Evo. Uh, there's been some back and forth and other people in both governments criticizing, calling Mexico a lackey and, and questioning, um, 
Ortega's Democratic bona fides. So a um, little bit different there. But Well, in politics, you never have to look far for hypocrisy. It doesn't matter what party or what country, right? So That's um, exactly right. Okay. Well, so this gives us a base of understanding. We've talked about Nicaragua, Bolivia, Venezuela, and Cuba. Um, all is how they pertain to Mexico. And part of the reason why we want to do this series is to help staffers, policymakers, and others understand if there were something were to happen to cause this region to become a hotspot. Um, you know, the alliances that could form, the the sympathies that are already existing within populations. It's some that's something that we haven't always understood when we've gotten involved in other areas. So Help us. Where are the landmines here, and maybe what we what we should watch out for on the horizon if uh, Central America, Latin America, ever really became a hotspot where we had, we had serious kinetic trouble or diplomatic issues. Yeah, I think you know historically in Latin America, just you know, not only Mexico. There's there has always been this. Um, fear of U.S. intervention because, of course, the U.S. has intervened so many times in, in our history, in our 200-plus years of history, you know, lots of intervention in Latin America, support from military dictatorships and, and for coups to get rid of democratically elected leaders. Um, so there's always going to be a support, a, a little bit of, at a minimum, a little bit of support for governments that appear to be threatened by the U.S., um, and that's why I think you see some support for Cuba, um, even though many governments, um, you know, sincerely believe in human rights and would probably acknowledge privately that there are real human rights questions in Cuba. But publicly, they support Cuba because it's a case of, you know, small, innocent Cuba being beat up on by big, bad United States. It's almost always good domestic politics in Latin America to be critical of the U.S. And supporting Cuba is often sort of a throwaway. It doesn't really cost you much to do it, um, but it looks good. It, um, so that's why, you know, every year in the U.N. vote against the U.S.-Cuba policy, uh, the vote is overwhelmingly opposed because, you know, it, it, it's a it's a resolution with no, no outcome. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, with AMLA, one of the things that, that staffers ought to be aware of, and to the extent it comes up, I, I think this is the real concern. A lot of what AMLO says is bluster for domestic political concerns. He, he's certainly not planning to, in any way, if it, you know, something, you know, if, if there were ever any kind of outbreak of violence, I mean, AMLO is not sending troops to defend Cuba, Nicaragua, Bolivia, anywhere. Um, but I think it's important to know that a lot of what he says is rhetoric that works for domestic political reasons. And I, I think it's understandable why some members of Congress see him cozying up, inviting Diaz-Canel to speak at Mexico's Independence Day, inviting Maduro. You know, he appears to be associating with people we don't like, um, or that certain, um, certainly certain members of Congress don't like or don't think he should be engaging with. Um, I'm not sure. I, I hope that the Mexican foreign ministry appreciates that this is not without risk. Um, it isn't a throwaway. But I also think members of Congress should appreciate that, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt. This is mostly domestic policy. AMLO is not really a foreign policy focused guy. 
And um, I think at the end of the day that, you know, that he understands the interconnectedness of our economies and our societies as such that at the end of the day, he doesn't have that much room to maneuver. But when it comes to making statements and inviting people to visit, that's that's good theater and, and easy, easy to do. OK, so it's, it could be for domestic consumption. But you mentioned earlier uh, his uh, quote unquote blockade running that he did with uh, with some some shipment of support to Cuba. How unique is that, though? Is there I mean, are there a lot of countries that do provide sort of aid and comfort to Cuba despite U.S. policy and despite uh, or what it could do with the U.S. relationship? Is that really much different than what others do? No, I mean, the, even the United States sends medical equipment to, to Cuba. So, you know, even, even we don't have a, a 100% um, blockade on Cuba. And sure, I think as far as I know, almost every country in the world trades with Cuba except the U.S. So, no, it's not out of character to be doing business with Cuba. Um, I think what was a little bit different was to you know, actively send three shiploads of aid, particularly given that Mexico's struggling to deal with COVID as well. Well, not to, I don't want to, to beat a dead horse here, but the uh, Cuba's, Cuba policy does animate the politics of some local areas within the United States, as you know, uh, and thus the members of Congress who represent those areas, they are animated by it as well. Is it something, is this something that you think there could be a pattern of, you know, AMLO sending things to Cuba for some domestic political gain to make some some hay out of it? You know, it's certainly possible for as a symbolic gesture. I, I can't see it, it reaching a, a level of, of volume that it would actually make a, a significant difference to Cuba. Uh, but I, you know, it's not inconceivable that um, he would do it again. I mean, you know, if there's a big, you know, hurricane or earthquake or something like that, if there's some sort of a disaster, I can imagine AMLO trying to help again. But, you know, he would do the same for Guatemala or or Honduras or, or anywhere else. So, you know, to your point, I think it's not, it, the behavior isn't wildly different. And more importantly, I don't think it really changes much on the ground. It does Again, it, it appeals to a domestic base. It seems it seems good. I think even for AMLO, it is a little bit of demonstrating his national sovereignty that he can he can help Cuba even if we don't like it. Interesting though to get the the understanding of the domestic politics and how all of that underlines these relationships. Yeah, you, you have you have to see things through the domestic lens of of the other country uh, to really understand why they're doing what they're doing. Well, that's the point of this series. We're calling it Relationships and Rivalries. Neighbors often go against neighbors or they can be friends with their neighbors. And I think that it's good for us on the policymaking side in the U.S. to have an understanding of how these relationships are working throughout the world. I think this is very good for especially Congress to know about. So thank you, Andrew, for being our our inaugural series opener here for this for this uh, Relationships and Rivalries series. Happy to do it, Aaron. I'm always happy when you start with a focus on, on Mexico, I think. It, so we need, that, that should happen more often given where it is and how important it is. Yeah, we'll start with Mexico and we'll go out in concentric circles. Uh, <laughs> Sounds good. All right, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. You got it, Aaron. 